Today's episode of Does Not Compute is sponsored by Zendesk. We all know it's impossible to make a perfect app. It's a great goal to have, but you always need a backup plan. When things do go wrong, it's really important to provide a great experience for your users. One of the ways that you can do that is by making sure your support flow is as seamless as possible. Zendesk helps you do that by providing mobile SDKs that allow you to quickly and easily embed help documentation, support ticket creation, and even live chat directly into your app. No more contact us email links that kick the user out to mail.app, which a lot of them don't even use. Zendesk lets your users have support interactions without ever having to leave your app. What's really cool is that it helps you too. By using the mobile SDKs, you can make support tickets automatically include useful information like app and device info and usage history. Zendesk provides a default UI to help you get up and running super fast, but if you want, you can also build out your own UI and provide a totally custom experience. All of this is included for no additional charge, so if you want to improve your customer support flow, make sure to check out Zendesk today by visiting zendesk.com slash does not compute. It feels feels different. It feels. Um, I was thinking about this earlier because I was working on Knife Foundation some more, and it feels so nice to be able to work on a project and not feel rushed, not feel like I'm in a hurry or there's like a deadline zooming. It was kind of enjoyable again because I was implementing a feature this morning and I took time. I took like an hour before and just refactored some stuff, uh, and it, it felt pretty nice, kind of refreshing almost. It's always really nice when you have a bit more time to think about what you're doing, really be mindful about it instead of just rush, rush, rush to hit a release date. Yeah. And I I know it's something we mentioned before. It's just, you know, being constantly busy or being constantly in a rush is never good, but I don't know. I guess it's coming back around to me full circle after talking about that, because now I have the feeling of not being rushed right now. And it feels pretty good today. For example, I went to the dentist and had my teeth drilled into, and I wasn't stressed out about it this morning. I was like, you know what? I have enough time to get what I need done. And it was kind of nice. Felt good. Yeah, I mean, that's that's never a great spot to be in when you're doing things for your actual physical health and you feel bad about it because of work. That's a pretty, that's a tough spot. When I'm getting my, t- when I'm getting feelings put in and I'm looking at Slack messages on my Apple Watch. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty fun. Um, but yeah, how, how is, uh, how have you been doing? I know you are at a GitHub Universe today. Yeah, yeah. First day at GitHub Universe was today. I was at that. Um, it was pretty fantastic. It was I hadn't been to GitHub Universe before, didn't make it last year, but uh, they do a great job. The venue is beautiful. There's it's just just such an awesome atmosphere. They they do a really great job of uh, putting the talks together as well. Of course, super cool. Yeah, if anybody has the ability to make it out to that next year, I highly recommend it. Easily my favorite conferency conference that I've been to this year. I haven't even looked at any what any of the talks are or anything like that, but I do remember uh, github.com slash universe 2016. And it's a different site than the conference site because um, this page kind of outlines what they're where they're going, what they're, where they want to take things. And it kind of um, also introduced some new features that I thought were really cool. And I remember a few episodes back, we were talking about GitLab and how they added kind of like a Kanban uh, board feature similar to Trello. And I thought that was the coolest thing, and I used it a whole lot. Um, and now, as I'm scrolling through this this site, it looks like GitHub's kind of getting a similar feature, which I think is is pretty awesome. Yeah, the keynote this morning was basically all the new stuff they're adding to GitHub. And like you mentioned, they have that Kanban board feature that they're adding. Uh, there's also some really cool stuff around doing code reviews. So you can do those in a much more structured way than just leaving line notes now. They're doing a lot of awesome stuff over there. And uh, GitHub is just becoming better and more and more useful all the time. It's very cool. 
Well, I think everyone's winning because GitLab is pushing in that direction too. You know, um, I didn't watch the keynote. I think they had a keynote maybe yesterday, a couple of days ago. Uh, but it seems like they're going in that direction too, where they're talking about more project management and more kind of like holistic overall view of your project as opposed to just tracking issues. Uh, and I think that everybody wins from that because for me, the longer a project is, the hardest thing about that project is project management and keeping things in scope and keeping keeping things organized. So, I mean, that's why I think the value of a good project manager, you know, huge because if the person, like a project manager is legitimately good at what they do, it makes my life as a developer so much easier. Uh, And so it's cool for me to see giant juggernauts like GitHub moving in this direction because I can definitely see how having a Kanban board might make an an issue list a little bit less daunting. Yeah, I mean, it really seems like they're focusing a lot more on the human problems because GitHub has always been really great at solving kind of, you know, how do, where do we put our code and how do we make sure that everybody stays on the same page with regards to the actual code that's being shipped? That part is, I mean, mostly solved now. Of course, there's always going to be improvements. There's always going to be things that change with that flow. But for the most part, that's in place. But tools around that stuff, the actual dealing with humans bit is still really, really difficult most of the time. And so I, th- I think it's awesome that they're dedicating a lot more time and resources into figuring out exactly what those problems are and how they should be approached. Because in the long run, that's going to be such a huge win for developers and project managers. And I like how you put that they're they're moving, they're making progress on dealing with the human problems, because those are always the hardest ones to solve. So I, I don't know. I'm looking. I'm really looking forward to seeing you know some open source projects that I follow, seeing what they. You kind of what happens, how the project uh, the project changes, or maybe even just the project management workflow changes around that. And hopefully, you know, that makes it easier for people to get more involved. Uh, again, I know that a giant issue with lots of labels can be hard to follow, but it, you know, it somehow becomes easier when you put things into columns, you know? So you could hop into like, for example, the tacky on Slack and say, hey, what do we need to tackle? And someone there could be like, hey, check out this board or check out this project on GitHub or something like that. Um, now granted there are like search filters, but it seems to me for some reason that people kind of, uh, overlook those. I don't know. I, I tend to love using like searching and filtering and stuff like that, but it seems to me that that's not the case for everyone. Yeah. I think my big hope for these tools is just that they'll kind of allow people who maybe haven't cared as much about the project management side of things in the past to get into that a bit more easily and start structuring things better. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, on another note, I did want to ask you how you felt about um, a certain topic. And uh, I think it was maybe Tuesday, someone tweeted at me and they brought up something that we mentioned in a previous episode. They're like, hey, I'm glad you know that you guys feel the same way. I don't, I'm not alone in this. And that made me feel really good because it felt like we were able to you know, show somebody that they're, they're like other people. There's other people like them. And so maybe a half an hour ago, I was just kind of scrolling around on Hashnode. If you're not familiar, it's a pretty cool site. People ask questions and other people answer. Not really like um, Stack Overflow like you're thinking. Uh, it's more of like a uh, kind of casual discussion. But as I'm scrolling through, I'm, I was started seeing a lot of questions like, is ES5 outdated? Do I have to move to ES6? Uh, do I have to move to ES6 and TypeScript even to make new APIs? And the one that stuck out to me most was a question that someone asked, um, and it says, is it normal of me to like ES5 more than ES6? And the, the gist of his question is, you know, he finds himself using ES5 more often than ES6. Um, and he's wondering, is it, you know, maybe is he not understanding ES6 properly and that's why he's not using it? Or 
Um, he ends it with, what can I do to convince myself and my fellow colleagues to use ES6? Uh, but I thought the phrasing of that question was interesting. Is it normal of me to like ES5 more than ES6? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I think what what's really interesting to me about that is what you said at the end there. Like, how can I convince myself and my colleagues to want to use ES6? And I think, I mean, my take on that is that you shouldn't. You, you should want to use it because it gives you some kind of benefit or because it makes you more productive or whatever that benefit is. There should be something that makes you want to do it. You shouldn't have to like force yourself to want to learn this new thing. I, I think that's something that I've personally struggled with a lot with ES6. Uh, I've written obviously a lot of ES5 code, but over the last year or so, I've also written, built out several projects in ES6 and I've always found it to be pretty clunky, honestly. A lot of the tooling around it is great for very isolated things, but if you're building something out, especially going back to GitHub, if you're building something out open source, it can be very difficult to make something in ES6 that is flexible and portable and is going to work in everybody's environment. Uh, Just because a lot of these tools are still pretty young and a lot of the thinking around this stuff hasn't fully coalesced. Personally, I've gone back to using ES5 for new projects, uh, and I've actually actually ended up reverting a couple older projects to ES5 from ES6 just because of all the difficulties with tooling there. Um, I really like a lot of things about ES5, and I really dislike a lot of things about ES6. Uh, I'm not huge on the class syntax. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of missing stuff, and it, that's being added. But for example, one one major thing is with instance methods on a class, there's no way to have those bound by default um, unless you're using the Babel ES2015 stage zero, and that may have been bumped up since I last looked into this. But there's just so many things that you need to know and need to deal with in this ecosystem that just, I I don't think the benefits are necessarily big enough to make it worth it. Well, that and the the pace of development is so fast. So you're talking about um, dependencies that are just straight up required for even base, you know, ES6 development. So there's difficulties difficulties around that because you just have a lot of dependencies, and then you start to take into uh, to consideration the speed at which things change. Like you mentioned, it could have changed since you last looked at it, and you didn't last look at that very long ago. And I think that was the big you know the biggest thing for me as well is it's just changing so quickly, and it's hard to keep up. I mean, it's one thing if you I guess if you're on a product and you're kind of using ES6 and that's kind of your world, but uh, I feel like for me. Uh, and to some extent for you, because you're working on a bunch of different projects, it's almost too difficult to deal with the changes in dependencies. Every time you set up a new project, something's different and something has changed. And then you either have to remember that or you have to go through and upgrade your other projects or downgrade them like you did. It just becomes a whole thing. But to go back to, I guess, the original question this person asked, is it normal? I, I think that was an interesting way for him to phrase it because I think his phrasing of that, and again, this is just kind of conjecture, but I think his phrasing of that comes from the sheer number of people out there saying, hands down, period, you just need you need to use it. And there's a few comments in here that kind of say the same thing. Like, yeah, it's like when you look at uh, ES5, is it outdated? A bunch of the answers are basically yes. Like the first line will just say basically, comma, yes, it's outdated. So I think a lot of that comes down, you know, from people asking other individuals what they think and kind of taking what that person responds to or replies with as how things are. And the point I wanted to make uh, in talking about this is that I want to encourage listeners and even encourage myself to take more time and research stuff uh, myself, read docs, form my own opinions before I go and take to the community and start accepting, you know, what random people are telling me is as truth. 
And I guess one of my favorite responses to the is it normal question was someone posted a picture of Morticia Adams and the quote is normal is an illusion. What is normal to the spider is chaos to the fly, which is pretty much how I feel about it, right? Like a lot of people are like, this is normal and I'm used to this. And for me, I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. Uh, There's just too much going on. I mean, to me, it's just it's so reductive to say, is ES5 outdated? Basically, yes. I mean, that doesn't really even answer the question. Is ES5 outdated in itself is a complex question. What are you using it for? Is it working? Is it serving your needs? Are you productive with it? Are you able to make cool stuff? Well, then, I mean, that doesn't sound like something that's outdated to me. That sounds like something that's doing a really great job. Is there a compelling reason that you feel you should be upgrading to ES6 other than it's the new thing that you're, quote unquote, supposed to be using? Well, if no, then why are you wasting time looking at ES6. You should be making more cool stuff with ES5 if if it's working really well for you. That's how I've kind of always approached tech decisions. Like if something is working for me and I'm happy and productive using it and able to make cool stuff and my customer, whether that's my customer being my employer or a customer being a freelance client or whatever that is, as long as the customer is happy and I'm happy and the tech is working, if there's no compelling reason to upgrade, then why would I why would I bother with that? And I say that as someone who loves working with new tech, but I'll play with new tech and evaluate it. And when I feel it's solid and when I see, oh, I'm going to get X, Y, and Z benefits out of making this transition and I'm going to have A, B, and C problems, okay, let me weigh those and see whether it's worth it yet. And that's, I mean, I don't see how anybody could ever make a technology choice based on anything other than weighing the pluses and minuses of making that switch. And if you're looking at ES6 and saying, uh, do I, how do I convince myself to want to use this? Then that just seems like the wrong approach to me. I completely agree with that answer. And I'm glad you said that stuff about, you know, you actually weighing the pros and cons. And if the cons outweigh the pros, then, then don't use it. And I mean, granted, there is a lot of pressure in the tech world to constantly use the latest and greatest tech. Like, you know, you can say, I worked on this project and someone will say, did you use X? And you'll say no. And then you might get some people just kind of badgering you about it, which is totally fine because you don't have to listen to them. But I feel like there is there is a lot of pressure kind of pushing people into using tools maybe that they're not comfortable with or they don't completely understand. Uh, and I think that's also a, a, a good thing to bring up. You know, like if you if you don't completely understand something, then you should take a little bit of time to research it. And it's kind of like doing a service to yourself, right? You're you're becoming more familiar with something before you actually use it. And that's again why we kind of talk about how pri- why, why side projects are pretty important because you get a chance to kick tires in a no uh, pressure environment, I suppose. But on top of that, I think, you know, it's a good reminder for me at least to have more confidence in what I think about things because I guess the root of it is, you know, before I felt like I was a very good developer, I didn't feel like I could trust my opinions on things, right? If I don't have very much confidence in my ability to to program in JavaScript and I look at ES6, I'm not going to look at it and form my own opinions and be like, that's why I think this. I'm more often not going to go to a community and ask questions and then kind of take other people's arguments, I guess, and use that. Did that make sense? Yeah. I mean, when you're getting started, all of this stuff is so intimidating. And I mean, that's actually one of the things I really dislike about ES6 personally is that I think there is a much, much steeper learning curve than there has been in previous iterations of JavaScript. And that to me is kind of a deal breaker in a lot of ways, because that's one of the things that I really love about a lot of web technologies, especially JavaScript, is how easy they are to get started with. And when you have when you have this ecosystem that requires all these different build tools, okay, so you want to start an ES6 project, you need to learn about 
Babel. You need to learn about a build system. Are you going to use Grunt? Are you going to use Gulp? Are you going to use NPM scripts? How are you going to do this? Oh, by the way, you need to learn what NPM is, which means that you need to install Node and kind of get a grasp on what server-side JavaScript is. And you still haven't even written any business logic for your application yet. You haven't written anything other than just boilerplate stuff so that you can use the latest and greatest instead of just starting to write code. And there, there certainly is something to be said in larger projects where you are going to want that architecture. You are going to want the thought behind all these processes. But especially for learning, that just seems disastrous to me and like such, a, such an anti-pattern in so many ways. An interesting point to make here is that uh, you mentioned, you know, when you're when you're learning, all this stuff is like really overwhelming, right? And so you can take that to be like a new programmer when you're learning programming in general. It's a whole lot of stuff. But a lot of people I see asking these questions, like uh, this person says, you know, how do I convince my team to kind of adopt this new thing? So it's kind of wild to me that people are, you know, that are making a living full time doing this stuff. Really, it's still kind of difficult. Like you said, it's the the barrier to entry to ES6 is is pretty high. But all that, uh, all that to say, you know, don't let a, a challenge stop you. There, you know, I've been using ES6 on a couple of projects, and I'm just trying to slowly, slowly understand it, slowly turn it into my working process. And after I feel more comfortable, I can kind of weigh the pros and cons and, and see where I want to go from there. Uh, so I want to ask you about one more thing, Paul, this week and something I think is really cool. Just announced today, you know, going back to the GitHub universe stuff we were talking about. But um, I'm seeing all over the place talking about how the GitHub's uh, V4 API is going to be using GraphQL instead of REST. Yep, that's the word on the street. It, when you look at the syntax, it looks kind of like JSON right? It's structured a lot like JSON. But I was reading a Hacker News thread about it, you know, regardless of how people feel, might feel about Hacker News. I was in there reading the comments and uh, <laughs> the top comment said, in hindsight, you know, sending a query written in a query language from client to server seems obvious. And then he, he gave a SQL example, select login bio location from viewer where user is question mark and the question mark might be like an ID or something like that, right? And so if you're unfamiliar with GraphQL, for the listeners, it does look kind of like a JSON format, but it's very much different than REST. So what you would do is you would specify what fields you want from what resource and you send a whole bunch of stuff, like a, a big query as one request, and you get back all of the data you asked for in the format that you asked it for. So if you compare that to REST, you know, you might have to go to slash user slash ID and you might get the user object, but then if you need the user's nested uh, information like items through relationships and stuff like that, you might also have to do an additional request for that. Whereas GraphQL, you can kind of format it like a SQL query and you get all the data you asked for back in the format that you asked for. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, so I, I don't know a ton about GraphQL. I was aware of it as a Facebook thing, but never really looked into it much. And then there were obviously all the big GitHub announcements about their new APIs today. So I've been looking into it a little bit. And what's interesting to me is that it it seems almost like a DSL for retrieving data from other people's systems, which is kind of cool. It's definitely interesting looking. It looks almost like JSON with all the values removed. It's just keys. But yeah, I think it, I think it seems pretty cool. I'm going to be really interested to see what, what people do with these new APIs for sure. Yeah, I think it's really cool because lately I've been getting into building APIs and I've gotten to a place with REST where I just need to learn more about it, need to learn more conventions, I guess. You know how, for example, when you're building an API and you have a collection endpoint, most times you need that collection endpoint to be filterable and sortable and all that stuff. And you can use plugins to do it. You can, you know, depending on what you're doing, if it's Rails, if it's Node, whatever, you can 
but I'm trying to get more familiar with just the nitty gritty details with REST, I suppose. And when I look at GraphQL, I mean, granted, I haven't really tried to use it at all and I haven't dug deep into it. But when I look at GraphQL, it seems like that problem is kind of solved for me, right? So I'm not having to think about how to structure my endpoints, how to structure my URLs. Um, I'm not thinking about when I'm building the client, you know, what what values do I need to be able to save so that I can, you know, that I can send off requests to the server without having to send off multiple requests every time. And when I look at GraphQL, you just, you know, you have the resource that you want and then you just ask for the data in a format and then you get it back. So that way, uh, I think, you know, application builders, for example, Tower, you know, they make a, a Git client for GitHub. I think that it could be really powerful for them because it almost opens up in the way that they can ask for data. Um, they don't have to kind of, they don't have to follow the rest laws. They can ask for the data that that they need in the structure that they need it. And it seems like for developers using the API, it would it saves a few steps. Yeah, what, what's kind of interesting is that based on my understanding of this, it's solving actually a lot of the same problems as something like JSON API. And I'm using JSON API as a proper noun there, the JSON API specification. It, it's solving a lot of the similar problems where you have an object and you like, I need to also get some data about objects associated with this one. But instead of doing that via the URL in a very, very strictly REST kind of way, this takes that and moves it more into the request body effectively, where you can say, okay, I'm going to build out my own graph, hence the name, I suppose, of the thing that I need. So it's, it's almost like you get to build out your own objects that work better for your system. Which I think is is really cool. It's a, it's definitely a very different way of thinking about things than traditional REST. That's for sure. Right. And thinking about it like that, I like it a lot because as I build more APIs, I've been finding that it's much easier when the server strictly strictly just ret- returns data and has no idea what a client might even look like. Right. Completely decoupled. And then the client's job would be to grab the data that it needs to build the UI that it needs. So I feel like this like you mentioned, takes that to an extreme where the client can really build up the graph of what it needs, the you know the entire collection layout. And the server really just says, here you go, here's what you asked for. There's even less hoops to jump through, whereas with REST, you kind of have to follow certain URL structures and you have to, even at that point, you know, if you want relationships, like you said with JSON API spec, you have to start including different uh, query params into the mix as well. With GraphQL, it seems like you're kind of freed from all that in a sense, which I find very interesting, frankly, and I'll probably be building something with it just to see how it is pretty soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see what folks start building with this stuff. Um, as I learn more about it and as I see things in the wild, I'm sure I'll have a lot more thoughts on it. Uh, but I'm, I'm mostly just excited right now. It seems like there's a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipe. And you know what, Paul? I trust those thoughts to be yours and yours alone. Thanks to today's sponsor of Does Not Compute, Zendesk. Since you're obviously a savvy internet connoisseur, I bet you already know how much easier Zendesk can make support. What you might not know is how awesome their mobile SDKs are. They allow you to bundle support ticket creation, live chat, and help docs directly into your app. That means your users don't have to leave your app to get the information they need. You can even automatically include app and device information with created tickets, which saves time for your support engineers too. You can visit Zendesk.com slash does not compute to take a look at how Zendesk can help you solve support.
My teeth hurt. <laughs> My teeth hurt, Paul. <laughs> okay.